We are today doing uh, the Kingdom of God series, Chapter 3, Major Biblical Themes, Chapter 3D, Covenant Theology Reviewed. Uh, as you know, if you've been following this, we kind of got interrupted in the, uh, in the Kingdom of God series, so I uh, decided basically to start over again. And I've been actually kind of glad I did. Uh, if anybody's familiar with uh, Nikki Gumbel and the Alpha course, he actually ran it around 20 times before he released it publicly because he was just constantly reworking the material and perfecting it and so forth. And actually, this, uh, this has actually come out to uh, making lots of improvements as I've been going. So I'm, I'm uh, very happy for how this is progressing. So last week, uh, we'll just, just we'll review, uh, start from the beginning of your outline. Our theme verse for the whole series is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a sense, just like Genesis 24 metaphorically is the story of the whole Bible in one chapter, this is the whole Bible in one verse. God's eternal purpose we looked uh, is, has been to bring his kingdom to the earth. And uh, like in the time of Jesus' first event or first coming, uh, a very, very high percentage of God's people uh, didn't have any clue as to what the scriptures were actually saying and what God is actually doing. And uh, we're kind of in a situation similar to that in Bible-believing Christianity since the Civil War uh, of America, and that is the 1850s or so. And so this, uh, this Kingdom of God series, as we're going to see at the end of today, will, uh, will really kind of give you your Bible back. It'll give you uh, the, the Old Testament back. It'll help you be, uh, be able to maintain being a fervent, zealous, radical Christian for your whole life. If you get, if you get these messages, uh, you know, there's actually kind of an idea uh, there's, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book on the unstated doctrines of Bible-believing Christianity, things we would never say, but, but we actually believe and do. And one, one of them is that you're supposed to get kind of less zealous and less radical and less idealistic and less passionate when you get older, as you, as you grow older. And being, being willing to go to the ends of the earth or make great sacrifices or or uh, having high ideals and, and so forth is supposed to be something that happens when you're first converted, but gradually you become sort of lackadaisical and a little bit cynical and, and you, you, know, you stray from your first love. That's really not God's plan. Uh, like a good marriage, uh, it's supposed to get better and better and better. And your zeal for God should be growing and if you see the, God's eternal plan, kingdom plan rightly, it will. That will happen in your life. So chapter 1, we looked at the fact that the kingdom of God is the central theme of all Scripture. Chapter 2, we define the kingdom of God in 12 statements. I gave three messages to do that so I could explain them. You will get a lot more out of the series if you go back and listen to all three of those messages. And the outlines are available. Lots of extra outlines are left on the back table on purpose. Go through them and find uh, Kingdom of God series chapter 2, A, B, and C. And so um, uh, chapter 3, we're looking at major biblical themes. And where, where I'm going for this, if you turn over and look at the titles... 
Chapter 5, a survey of kingdom history in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, One of the points we're going to bring out today is we call the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that's actually a misnomer. It's misnamed. And uh, really what we call the Old Testament would be better called the Hebrew scriptures. And we'll look at that a little bit later in this today's message. Um, but uh, in terms of major biblical thing, or in terms of taking kind of a survey of the covenantal federal heads uh, of the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures, you will do, you'll do a lot better with that if you have these major themes of scripture, which I'm going to try to limit to about eight or 10 uh, weeks. This is the fourth week. Uh, the first week, chapter A, we looked at the plenary, which means full inerrancy of Scripture. One of the most misunderstood things in modern times is that Scripture is inerrant. There's no errors in it. It is historically accurate. But most people who hold to that also use the word literal to interpret Scripture literally. And the, the didactic portions of scripture, that is the, the, the things that just state facts, doctrines, and so forth, uh, those are pe- to be interpreted plainly. But much of scripture is a sovereign God who had an eternal decree, as we looked at in chapter 3a or b, uh, who's outside and above history, using the events of history and the people of history to tell a narrative and using all sorts of lit- literary features. That's why Martin Luther's idea was actually uh, literary. The German word actually means literary, not literal. In an overly literal interpretation of scripture, again, people think if you say attack literal, you're attacking inerrant or historically accurate. You are not. Now, there are those who see the Bible as a narrative and see the Bible as uh, containing lots of simile, parables, metaphors, word pictures, and other foreshadowings and other things you would look for in good literature who, uh, who dismiss historical accuracy and inerrancy. That's really the, the essence of mainstream or, or liberal Protestantism today and, and mainstream or, and liberal Catholicism today. We are not talking about that. We would never go there. Every jot and tittle of Scripture is inerrant. But so many who hold to that idea dismiss the, what they call the Old Covenant or the Hebrew Scriptures altogether when Jesus said very clearly in his major teaching for disciples called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right after the Beatitudes, And right after telling the church that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that is, we're supposed to be that which is bringing the the kingdom of God. We are not supposed to be retreating or losing ground. If, if, uh, if, if If a culture is getting more amoral and more immoral, and losing grounds in, in terms of Christ, it's, the, it's an indictment against the church that the church is, is that the Christianity in the church is not sufficiently Christian. So Jesus makes that very clear. And the original followers of Jesus were within 15 to 20 years of the resurrection accused in Acts 17, and I think rightfully so, of turning the whole world upside down. They were upsetting the entire Roman Empire 
within a few years of Pentecost. So, uh, you know, what we're, uh, what inerrancy is a very important thing, and it's very important to see that it's historically accurate, but it's also important to see that God has an eternal decree. He has a story to tell, and he's so sovereign, that almost is oxymoron, or uh, whatever, redundancy, I mean, so sovereign, uh, uh, sovereign is sovereign. You're either sovereign or you're not sovereign. He's sovereign in such a way that he writes his message in the people and events of history, especially the people and events of covenant history, those who he makes covenant with. And that's what we looked at last week is eight common characteristics of all biblical covenants. Our society has gone crazy partly because we have become a non-covenantal society because we don't have what we're going to talk about today, covenantal theology. So uh, people have what today they are using the term serial marriage. That is people enter into an eternal lifelong covenant six, seven, or eight times. <laughs> and uh, uh, Much like uh, I used to do when I went steady with girls in fifth and sixth grade. And, uh, you know, uh, new one every six weeks because they were, I was a jerk and they were always dumping me, but, uh, or, or vice versa, whatever, you know, you know how fifth grade is, but, uh, that, that's basically, that's basically kind of what people are viewing there. That's so, uh, mortgages, which is entering into a covenant have gone from a few sheets of paper to over a hundred and some sheets of paper because people are covenant breakers. And so they have to they they have to find every which way that people have tried to wiggle out of the covenant and add another document so you can't do that. Because your word is no longer your bond. If people say, I'll be there, I'm gonna do that, that means they're thinking about it. <laughs> and uh so covenant has got to be the basis of what Christian community and the church is built on. The Bible is a series of covenants. So today, uh, last week, we looked at eight characteristics of all covenants. Uh, we have some extra uh, outlines that we left on the printer at home that we'll get here in time for the second meeting If you and, and pass them out to whoever wasn't here last week who wants to listen to it on the podcast. Uh, uh, there's a few back in the back. So today we want to go beyond examining what's covenant, uh, what covenant means, and and get into an idea called covenant theology. Now, um, in general, in the Bible, there are two types of covenants. Okay, the first type is called uh, theological covenants. Now, not every theological covenant has all of these eight points specifically spelled out, but they are always implied and at times mentioned in other places. So, for instance, the first covenant, which some covenant theologians erroneously call the covenant of works, we'll deal with why that's wrong in a minute, but it uh, should probably be called the dominion covenant or the covenant of Adam or the Adamic covenant. The, the original covenant that God made with Adam and Eve called the Dominion Covenant, spoken of in Genesis 1, 26 and following, which has all the eight characteristics, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the, uh, subdue the earth, etc. Then people miss this, but right after he gave, 
gave them commands and blessings and so forth. He gave them covenant celebration by creating food. And all covenants include a ceremony of enactment and ceremonies of renewal, and food is always involved. Uh, that's one thing I love about the Christian life. As you can see, I have my credentials right here with me. Uh, I like to uh, have fellowship over food. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and uh, there's a great tradition for that from uh, Genesis to Revelation. When Jesus was making covenant, he gave us a covenant meal to renew the covenant uh, on the Lord's day, the first day, the eighth day is always the first day. It means the beginnings of the new creation, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, the new earth. And it's partaken by those who have covenantally entered into Christ and have become new creatures in Christ Jesus. So now um, in terms of covenant theology, the, the idea that it's... Uh, that it's not always in Scripture. I'm actually jumping down to point B1 here. Hosea says this, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they de dealt faithlessly with me. So Hosea, a prophet of God, inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying that Genesis 1 and 2 was a covenant. People will object and say, Well, I don't see the word covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. But you see all the ingredients of covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, jumping back up to uh, Roman numeral 3, which I accidentally skipped. Um, covenant theology is an interpretive hermeneutic or paradigm. Now, what are those things? Uh, in other words, it's a, it's a way, it's a system or a grid or a set of lenses through which we perceive or filter scripture. Whether you know it or not, you bring to the scripture uh, a set of lenses every time that if you're unconscious of them, does not mean that you don't have them. And in fact, what spirit you're involved in uh, will determine more what you get out of scripture than what the words actually say. So I uh, had a good friend once who's now gr very much m mature and grown up in the Lord. But years ago, uh, he read Matthew 7, and where Jesus said, Many will come to me and say, Did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? Uh, and the Lord says, I will, I will say, Depart from me, I never knew you, which in Greek means I never approved of you. We didn't have any fellowship. We didn't have a covenant. We didn't have intimacy. Uh, this person had, because this person was really re reading things out of a spirit of rejection, uh, basically said, boy, if guys that are so spiritual that they cast out demons and heal the sick uh, can't, cut, can't make it with God, what chance do I have? which is not the message, meaning of the thing at all. See, you, whatever spirit you are influenced by will actually be the lenses that you get out of Scripture. One of the reasons we emphasize being baptized in the Holy Spirit and learning how to stay filled with the Holy Spirit and be empowered of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was lead, given to lead and guide you into all truth. So I... Uh, in fact, one of the first guys that I actually learned this covenant theology from was a guy named Charles Simpson. And 
Uh, I remember him saying uh, that he got baptized in the Spirit in 1964. I was hearing him teach on covenant theology and dominion eschatology and things like that in 1974. And he said, I got baptized in the Spirit in 1964, and it took 10 years for my theology to catch up with my experience because he had been brought up uh, in a certain tradition, which is, well, he wouldn't mind saying it, Southern Baptist, which was dispensational and in uh, what, what's called hyper premillennial and, and so forth, in a very retreatist, reductionist way of looking at Scripture. And so by the Holy Spirit, over time, God gave him the Scriptures back, which I'm going to attempt to do for us today. Now, the reason it's important to, to see this covenant theology is this. There's one God. All truth is one. In the 13th century, the 1200s, when in Europe, which was at that time Christendom, created an institution called the university. University means one truth because of the idea that one, there's one God. And their idea was, if we put all of the academic disciplines in the same environment to interface with one another and communicate and write, write to each other and discuss over coffee or at the pub, over a beer or whatever, uh, the things of God, we will come out uh, at one truth. Una means one, versity, ver vera, veracity means truth. And... Uh, we will find the one truth of the one God by, by interfacing with the fact that theology, as it was seen in, in a, and it should be seen in a Christian way of thinking, theology is the foundation for all reality, for all truth, for all academic disciplines. Theology has a close sister called history. And theology and history are necessary to study whether you're an engineer or a psychologist or a mathematician, or you will totally miss reality and truth altogether. If you study what only what they teach in the psych psychology departments at, at universities today, which is coming out of uh, their uh, worldview that's called materialism, they don't even any longer acknowledge uh, an unseen part of man or, or the existence of a soul. Uh, in fact, I'm going to refer to a, a book a little bit later by J. Well, um, I will mention there's a book named J.P. or a guy named J.P. Moreland, an evangelical, teaches at Biola University. Many of you are familiar with him because I recommend his book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. He recently came out with a book defending that, that we have a soul because the materialist worldview has gone to the point where they don't believe you have a soul. You are just a set of biological and chemical occurrences. Things firing and synapses and electrons and protons and whatever. And therefore, psychology has become drugs. Uh, let, let's not go back and, and deal with inner pain or subconscious or anything like that because they don't acknowledge you have that. So believe me, your paradigms, they matter. Uh, again, you, you need to start with the fact that there's one God. Scripture has one author that was written, and he wrote it with one purpose and one overriding theme. 
we come to the Bible as if it's a bunch of disjointed uh, nonsense, and that's nonsense. Now, that's important because that gets into the concept of what's called the one and the many. All Christian truth starts with that concept. We are a people who worships God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the many. But they are three persons in one being, the one. And so in, in, in God's diversity, there's always unity. God's math is that the three equal one. God's math uh, in Christ is that there were the eternally begotten, deal with that, son of God, who has no beginning or no end, yet was begotten of the Father, at a point in time became a human being. And he's 100% God, and he's 100% man, in such a way as the two natures are not confused, yet they perfectly exist in one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the two are one. Husband and wives enter into a covenant where the two become one. And actually, in Christ, you enter into a covenant where the three become one. God, the husband, and the wife, the three are one. So in marriage, the two are one, and the three are one. In Christian baptism, baptism in water is one. And you enter into the one body of Christ as one of the many members. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is one. And when you, like 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, when you are baptized by one spirit, you are baptized into one body. And so, uh, again, baptism in the Holy Spirit is one covenantal ceremony that, in, that is a part of starting with the family of God. But in God, those two are one. They are the one baptism. One, we have one faith, one Lord, etc. in Ephesians 4. And those two baptisms are one baptism. So uh, it's important that we get our scripture back by understanding it's one God, one author, one purpose, one theme, one eternal decree. There is, Hebrews 13, 20, the blood of the eternal covenant. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before they were even created time and material, the material dimension of life, from all eternity they had a covenant that the Son would become a man, die for our sins, rise, be coronated and, and anointed as King of Kings, and that the Spirit of God would come to the earth to get a bride for his Son. Just like Abraham sent his servant to get a bride for his for for uh, for Isaac, Genesis twenty four, the whole Bible in one chapter, uh, using again using foreshadowing and and uh, using types. Now, in order to understand this better, I want to introduce us to two concepts as quickly as possible. One is a paradigm. A paradigm is a set of assumptions, concepts, values, and practices that constitute a, a way of viewing reality for the community sharing them, especially in an academic discipline. Everyone has paradigms. If you're a businessman, there are business paradigms. Thomas Kuhn wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is the, probably the, the best book at, if you want to understand paradigms. He was not a Christian. 
but he talked about how science is, is totally determined by the paradigm, the assumptions the scientists are bringing to the table. That's why as the assumptions change, the science changes. Do you know in the 1970s, you were considered a fool, an idiot, an uneducated, narrow-minded bigot if you didn't believe we were entering into a new ice age. Now you're considered a fool, an idiot, a narrow-minded bigot if we're not if we're not going to global warming. And that's just changed in 40 years. When I was a kid, the earth was 2.4 billion years old. Now I think it's over 8 like 8.4 billion years or something like that. I'm aging really well. <laughs> You might not be able to see that. <laughs> Step back from the perspective of billions of years. Man, there's been another six billion years added since I was in sixth grade. It took me about three billion years just to graduate from college. Slow learner. Um, so hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a branch of theology. It's the study of how to interpret the Bible. Now, um, here's some examples. After World War, or after after the Civil War, uh, what's today known as mainstream Protestantism or modern Protestantism, and the mainstream thinkers, theologians of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, began to embrace some new paradigms for interpreting the Christian faith. Those included what's called higher criticism, which was the idea that we should doubt everything that the first and second and third century Christians said, that if we can't find it written down and documented, despite the fact that they were closer to the facts and they had a firm tradition of handing things down by memorizing lot, large quantities of material, as all ancient cultures had. But if we can't find uh, written documentation that Paul wrote all three 13 of the books associated with Paul, even though no one in the first century who knew Paul, Peter, and the other apostles ever doubted it. We're so, we're so smart because we're moderns that we should doubt it. If you go to United Theological Seminary, mainstream Protestant seminary here in Dayton, you will hear various theories about how many of Paul's books Paul actually wrote, but none of them get close to 13. Most of them are around six. That never occurred to Peter or anybody else in the first five centuries. That never occurred to anyone for 19 centuries. But then, you know, it, and it really is just a bad case of what you go through when you're a teenager sometimes. If you're not, uh, you know, if you don't have the best relationship with your parents and you're a little bit uh, immature or whatever, you just go through this kind of bad view of adolescence that doesn't need to be. And that's kind of where modern man is in his thinking. It's the idea like, uh, you know, Israel used to be real fun to play with when she, you could hide your eyes and go, boo. And she, she thought when she hid her eyes, you couldn't see her. And that's what modern man does to God. Modern man is at a stage of development intellectually where if he, he thinks that if he denies God, God can't see him. And, and I assure you, God intends to progress man beyond that point in the end through his church and through the redemption that's in, in Christ. So, uh, 
anti-supernaturalism and naturalism, etc., cetera, uh, that all emerged out of Darwinism and higher criticism. And it took away the Gospels and the Book of Acts and the, ten, and the Ten Plagues of Egypt and so forth. And even some modern evangelicals buy that. If you, uh, one of the reasons I do not recommend the NIV Bible, and especially this NIV Study Bible, is because they feel like they have to bend over backwards for every miracle to give a natural explanation of how it might have happened. Really? Is that necessary? So, uh, believe me, the spirit you're in, even when, as, as the world conquers the church with a spirit of anti-supernaturalism, post-enlightenment, skepticism, and so forth, you, you, whether you know it or not, you have massive layers of unbelief that you've been discipled in by the culture and even the church today. And you have to cry out to God and purposely pioneer out of that. Uh, so, modern dispensationalism is the opposite of covenant theology. We will deal with that in um, chapter 12 extensively, so I'm going to skip that for now. Um, if you want to kind of get a history of how this all happened and what I'm saying, I would recommend the first few chapters of J.P. Moreland's book, Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. But basically, uh Western Christianity split into sort of two camps, although hundreds of denominations, one uh, conservative and one liberal, but both of them embraced new modern ideas for, and paradigms of how to interpret Scripture that reduced the Scripture considerably. And, and where we're going today is that covenant theology will give that back to you. Oh, I'm not going to make this in one week. So... Um, in the Bible, there are two kinds of, of covenants. The one is theological covenants. We've already touched on those. Um, uh, as you get into various covenant theologians, you'll get into um, a debate about whether there are one, two, or three covenants in the Bible. And you, so it, depending on who you're reading. So um, if you read, say, J.I. Packer's book on covenant theology, He's a believer in the three covenants, I believe, um, if I remember right. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a, a believer in three covenants. John Calvin was a believer in one covenant. So the idea is this. Those who believe in one covenant look to Hebrews 13, 20, the, the blood of the eternal covenant, and they say God has one overarching covenant that he's, been, that he's working, one eternal decree. Those who would say there's two covenants would divide that one covenant into the covenant that they would call the covenant of redemption, which is the covenant God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had with themselves, and the covenant of grace, which are the, the covenants that God goes through the Bible, the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through Christ and so forth, they would call the covenants of grace. Now, frankly, as long as you understand that it's one God, one covenant, you could, for discussion purposes, organize your thoughts according to the things that God had in himself versus the things God does with man. But they're really the outworking of one. And I think it's, it reduces things to divide them up as well. Now, some add a covenant works. Uh, Wayne Grudem, you can 
uh, Google his uh, Google the Covenant of Works by Wayne Grudem. You can read, which is actually just chapter 25, part A of his systematic theology. And he, they basically say that Adam was under a covenant of works. And what they mean by that is that God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was the, that was the law of the covenant. And the sanctions was death. All covenants have uh, commands and, and, and requirements. And all covenants have sanctions for disobeying. Uh, however, if you understand it better, uh, uh, and again, there's where paradigms are so powerful. I, I'm not even in the same league as, as Wayne Grudem in terms of, nor or you know John Calvin, but John Calvin's paradigm is more scriptural, because in this particular case, because what he's saying is, is that there's one God, and there's one eternal covenant, and the covenant with Adam is grace. Adam didn't choose to create himself. Adam didn't plenish the, you know, fill the garden with the presence of God. All covenants have commands and all covenants have sanctions. And Adam and Eve were subject to the sanctions of the covenant of grace. Romans 2.8 is kind of a key to understanding all covenants in the Bible. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. All covenants start with grace. God was under no obligation when he created man to relate to man. He graciously created man and he graciously chose to, to have a relationship with man and he graciously chose to have man be whom he would work out his eternal purposes through. And he all, and all covenants have commands and all covenants have consequences or sanctions. Sanctions means disciplines or chastisements for disobedient, and they have blessings for obedience. Now, the second kind of covenant is called a federal head covenant. All of these for those who, those who divide into the covenant of redemption, which is God's covenants within himself, and the covenants of grace, God's dealings with man, those people are divided into two sets of covenants, which are really one. Uh, all of them would say that the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, all of these are covenants of grace, whereas the eternal covenant would be a, the covenant of redemption. I believe that the, all the covenants of grace are the outworkings of the eternal covenant of redemption that God had. Okay, so all those covenants, because God always, if you go back to the definitions part of the kingdom of God series, you'll see that God has always intended to have a nation of people be his special treasure and carry his spirit and his glory and his ways and his laws in such a way that they mediate the kingdom of God, that they become the people who fulfill thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God would never have us pray for something that we're not actually working toward uh, or living toward. God's purpose is to bring the perfect uh, sanctuary of heaven, whereby all beings love him and willingly do his will. And there is no sin and death and decay. God wants to bring the perfection of the glory of the temple of heaven into the temple of the Garden of Eden, eventually into the temple of of Israel and the and they're all kind of foreshadowings in the of the temple and the in the tabernacle and then the permanent temple and so forth until we the people of God become the temple 
Christ himself, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word became God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled. The word, Greek word means uh, templed among us. Jesus was the temple of God. That's why he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his own, the temple of his body. Now, um, so uh, God's, all of God's covenantal heads are covenants that he makes with federal heads that he intends to birth a race of people, and that race of people will, sh will become his special treasure or people. In the God always intended now, uh, that and always knew that man would fail every covenant. And if you study carefully, no covenant ever stops in the Bible. It's just fulfilled by, by God through his redemption, through the shedding of blood, in order uh, that, that the covenant might be fulfilled and rolled completely into the next covenant so that he can, because get, once a covenant is verified, according to Paul, you cannot add or subtract from it. Once God stipulates a covenant, it, it exists forever. And it, can, it must be fulfilled. But man will always fail. And God himself is the, is the guarantor of the covenant. Now, um, Let's look at that point for a couple minutes, and then we'll end there, and then I'll have to give another title. Maybe uh, next week I'll call it uh, the eternal uh, – next week I'll probably call it uh, a better covenant, and I'll look at why covenant theology and seeing, seeing Christ as the guarantor of the better and eternal covenant uh, – what advantage, how that gives us our Bibles back. But for this week, we'll just, we'll, we'll just end up with this point D and we'll stop there. Uh, what we want to see is that there's covenant continuity and fulfillment from, from covenant to covenants throughout the, what's what we call the Old and New Testament. Now, what we call the Old Testament actually began in Exodus 19 with Moses. And so it's really the Hebrew scriptures, which is a series of federal head covenants. First Adam, then Noah, etc., and eventually Moses. So, Galatians three nineteen through twenty two, Paul makes this very clear. It says, "Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant." And he's implying, of course, that God's covenants are much higher, even in a man's covenant. Yet, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. In your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Nor does the new covenant, by the way, nullify the law. It establishes, as Jesus made clear in Matthew 5. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So remember, all covenants are grace working through faith. Adam and Eve had a choice to make. They, they could, they could uh, when the serpent said, indeed hath God said, he first attacked their faith in what God had said, the word of God. All, all temptations are ultimately an attack on the scripture. Secondly, 
Uh, he attacked the character of the person who wrote the scripture. All scripture comes out of the nature of God. So then he called God a liar. He said, no, you certainly won't die. God's lying is the implication. And he's tr and, and he's uh, always attacks thinking God's trying to hold something. The reason people are unbelievers is because they're still buying the lie, which there's something better in life outside of full commitment to Christ, which is nonsense, which is deception, which is what it means to be spiritually lost. The reason people aren't radically zealous and on fire for Christ is because they're still believing various parts of the lie that I can, you know, that I can define the covenant myself and I'll take this much of God and not that much of God and, and all that kind of thing. The reason people don't obey God in this area or that area is because they have another scripture that they've in their mind. Well, this doesn't apply to the New Testament and and, you know, I didn't think I really needed to do what the Bible says to confess my sins. I could just go, you know, whatever. People always have a substitute for the, for the clear expressed scriptures of God. So all grace is by faith, all faith, all salvation, all covenants uh, are by grace working through faith. And faith is ultimately not only in the word of God, but in the person and character of God. Paul said, I know him whom I have believed. Now, uh, that's, that's important. You, covenants aren't changed. We'll deal next week with, what well, you know, when the law came, of course, certain parts of the covenant are still are not lived because they're fulfilled. We don't sacrifice bulls or rams anymore because the one sacrifice has been made for all time, of which those other sacrifices were merely a foreshadowing. Uh, Hebrews says... Uh, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his eternal decree, purpose, covenant, interposed with a covenant oath. All, remember, the eight things of covenants include oaths. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us in the eternal covenant. Let's flip over and, and I'll wrap up with this. Genesis 15, uh, 8, we read last week, so you can read it for yourself. But basically, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he knew Abraham could not live it. So he slew a bunch of animals and God went through the animals foreshadowing and, and saying, Abraham, like Adam, like Noah, Abraham will surely fail the covenant. But no covenant is, is failable because I myself will fulfill the covenant by the shedding of blood and by forgiving. And I will negate the sanctions by redemption of blood. And thus, all through the Bible, we get to where, where the, you know, the, and the Jews understand this better. So I quoted this one, next one out of the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb 
for a burnt offering so that they went, both of them together. In other words, God himself is the lamb. God's not going to provide himself a lamb uh, as he did with Abraham. God himself will provide Christ a lamb. God himself will be the lamb. That's what the Hebrew means there. And the uh, complete Jewish Bible, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So as we'll get into next week, we'll, talk, we'll uh, pick up with Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant, and we'll uh, talk about uh, all the benefits of covenant theology in terms of why it gives your whole Bible back and why it makes every jot and tittle of the whole Bible exciting and interesting. One of the major things that I do is have Bible studies with lots of people. And probably the, the greatest question by sincere Christians that I get, many, many sincere Christians say, I try to read the Old Testament, but I don't understand it. And I, I end up stopping. I only get a little distance. And I suggest to you it's because modern paradigms have reduced the Bible so that you don't understand the continuity of the covenants. And as you, when you understand the continuities of the covenant, there won't be a line in the Bible that's not exciting to you. Amen.